Okay. So our topic today is we're going to focus on using Sefer Tehillim to pray for children. And I, I say that broadly. It could be to pray for children as in to have children. It can be to pray for the well-being of children. Um, before we go into the actual Mizmor, the actual chapter of Tehillim that we're going to study, I want to look at some characters in Tanakh who went through the same thing, who prayed either for children or for the well-being of children. Um, we'll go through a little bit about where they were coming from and what they were feeling and what their emotional state was. And we'll see how that mirrors um, or how that is reflected within the, the chapter of Tehillim that we're going to, to, to learn today. Um, you can choose to follow along with the source sheet. You can choose to not follow along with the short source sheet. It doesn't make a difference. Everything will be um, explained. And of course, if there are any questions, you know, shout, shout it out. Um, so the, the, the first source talks about the Gemara in Masechet Ta'anit makes of the following statement. There are three keys that only Hashem holds. And Hashem doesn't send a messenger to take care of any of these things. These three keys are the key of rain, Mafteach Shel Geshamim, the key of rain. The second one is the key of life. And the third one is the key of Tichiyat HaMetim, the key of resurrection. Right? And the Gemara's point here is that Hashem doesn't, um, so, so to speak, give these keys to any sort of messenger, to any sort of person, to any sort of Malach. Right? We see many times throughout Torah, throughout Tanakh, that Hashem sends messengers to do things. But when it comes to rain, when it comes to children, and when it comes to resurrection of the, of the dead, Hashem does all those things himself. Okay, so it seems fitting to start with that because when an individual turns to Hashem to pray for children, for the well-being of their children, right, that's something that God deals with directly himself. Okay, so it makes sense that we're going to, you know, turn to God in, in that time of need. And we're going to see that it is indeed a time of need. Um, the first woman that we famously know about that did not have children in, in, in Torah, right, is Sarah. Okay, um, and Sarah we know married to Abraham Avinu. They did not have children. The pasuk, the psukim tell us in source number two, right, that she Avra, Sarai was the wife of Abraham. Loyal, that she didn't have any children with him, right? And and she didn't have any children. And then the pasuk continues on and says that Sarah had a maidservant, and her name was Hagar. So pasuk bet Sarai tells Abraham, Hash, Abraham, Hashem has not given me any children, okay? Why don't you take my, my maidservant as a wife? And she uses the following words, Maybe I will be built up from her, okay? So in suggesting that Abraham take her maidservant Hagar as a wife, she uses the term, Maybe I will be built up from her. Interesting choice of wording, right? What's What exactly does that mean? So we turn to the commentaries for some, for some insight. Rashi, in source number three, says, right, Ulai ibanemi mena. What does that mean? I will be built up from her. Right? He's saying, ibanemi, someone that's built. Somebody that doesn't have children, says Rashi, feels that they're not banui. They're not built up. Rather, they are harus. They are in ruins. They are broken. 
Okay, so this is what Sarai is feeling. She's, it's as if she's telling Abraham, I'm right now in a, I feel broken. I feel like I'm in a broken state that we don't have children. Come and marry my maidservant and maybe through her children, I'll feel built up again. Okay? And, and, and the, in the next Rashi, Rashi points out, right? Right? In the merit that I'm going to bring another wife into my home. Now, the other wife is called Sarati, right? Sarati, from, from the word Sarah, right? Like, I'm going to trouble, exactly, pain, right? I'm, I'm going to give my husband another wife. That's not a pleasant situation for, for anybody, right? So I'm literally going to bring pain into my life, but this is an act of desperation, right? She's, this is, this, she wants to feel like she is going to have the opportunity to be built up to build a family, right? Literally. And in, in bringing another wife into the home, she's saying, you know, in, in my act of desperation, this is what I'm going to do. And I, and I hope that this is going to work, right? So we, so what, what do we have here? We see this lack of, this lack of, of, you know, this childless experience is causing Sarai to feel very, very broken, whether it's she feels physically broken, like her body has failed her, right? We know that sometimes women, unfortunately, will feel like this in in her scenario, or if she just feels like broken, her spirit is broken, like she just doesn't know what else to do, okay? Rav Rav David Svi Hoffman, um, in source number four, so Rav Hoffman is a lived in like the mid 1840s, early 1920s. He was the Rosh Yeshiva in, in Berlin, and he wrote a very important commentary on Chamisha Chumshei Torah, on, on the Torah. And he says, right, that the Mishpacha is a bite, the, the, the house is a, the, the family is a house, right? That's what Ulai Ibanemi Mena means. She feels her home was incomplete without children. Right, and he takes this metaphor and really goes with it. The habanim him livenim, like the children are the bricks. The children are literally the bricks that build the house. Okay, and that's why she used that term, that the, that phrase, ulai ibanemi mena. Right, she literally wants the bricks to build her house, to build her family. And he says this is where the word, right, this is where the word ben comes from. Milashon bana to build, right, ben a son, but also from the shorish bana to build. So he. He kind of uses that, that similarity in the language um, and he connects the two very, very, very nicely. Okay, the next woman that, that we're going to look at is Rachel, right? We know Rachel also um, was, was barren and did not have children. And we know that that experience was very, very painful for her. So I want to look at the first two pesukim of Perik Lamid in Bereshit. Um, and, and we all know this interaction. It's a very painful interaction. We, you know, we, we feel really bad when, when we read these pesukim, right? We see that Rachel um, is, is looking at her sister, okay? Her sister already has, has four kids at this point. And the feeling that she's feeling is, right? Vatikane Rachel right? She, she feels jealous. Um, and she lashes out at Yaakov because she's feeling this way. And she yells at him and she says, Havalibanim, give me children. Ve'im ayin, and if you don't, Meta Anochi, I am dead. Okay? And we see that Yaakov lashes out again right back at her, right? He doesn't appreciate being kind of attacked like this and says, Is, is it my instead of God that, that can give you children? Right? Well, why, why, why are you coming at me like this? So there's really a lot to unpack here in this interaction, but I want to point out just a couple of things. I want to point out that in her statement, Ve'im ayin Meta Anochi, right? So obviously that's coming from a place of, of pain, of, of really deep pain, 
she's saying like that. She's saying, I, I feel like I'm dead. Rashi, um, drawing on a Midrash or on a, on a Gemara, really, says, from here we learn that somebody that doesn't have children is considered like he's dead. Somebody that doesn't have children is considered dead. Um, right? The Gemara says four people are considered dead, right? A blind person, a person with tzara'at, a poor person, um, and, and a person with no children. And, and there's, we could talk about, you know, what, what that means. What do these people have in common, perhaps? you know, it has to do with their future, right? They feel like they have no continuity. So what does their life mean if they feel like they're limited in terms of their ability to continue their life, to live their life to the fullest, right? No children, no legacy. Um, It could also mean socially, right? It takes away a lot socially. Think of a blind person, a poor person, and a person with no children. It, It really impacts them socially, right? Think of somebody who you know, you get married around the same time as your friends and, and you're watching all of them have children and, and get pregnant and, you know, and, and that couple is kind of just there. Um, they're watching everybody move on and, and they feel sort of stuck. They feel like they're, they can't move on with their life, right? So, so you, we can think about, you know, how death kind of plays in. Um, but the point is, is that Rashi makes this, this comment that somebody that doesn't have children um, is, is considered dead, and Rachel really does feel that. She feels that in a very, very, very strong way. Um, Rav Avraham ben, the son of the Rambam, also has a commentary on Torah, and he writes, right, he, he, he's, he's drawing on the pain that she's feeling, right, and he says that if I don't have children, I'm gonna just, I'm, my grief will consume me to the point of death, okay? So we see so far, we see Sarah, who's willing to resort to things that are very drastic and probably not in her personal well-being, but she's going to do it in the interest of trying to have children. And we see Rachel as well, who's really coming from a place of pain and from a, a place of grief um, in, this, in, her, in her journey on, on trying to, to turn and, and have children. The next one we're going to look at is Chana. We cannot talk about prayer and prayer for children without talking about Chana, Okay. Um, the first parak of, of Shemuel Aleph, very, very, oh, there's, there's, there's so much there, so much there about prayer, so much there about connection to God, um, but we're going to just point a couple of things out about Chana. So we know that Chana was married to a man named Elkanah, we know that Elkanah had two wives, Chana and Penina, very similar to the Rachel, Yaakov, Leah situation, right? Chana was the beloved wife that had no children, like Rachel. Um, right, Penina was the other wife of Elkanah, who you know was the not beloved wife or the less beloved wife who had a bunch of children, um, and and that tension was was really there, um, and the Pesukim tell us about it. Okay, in, in Pasuk Hey we have Ulechanayitin Manachat Apaim. Right, so when Elkanah would go to the Beit Hamikdash and bring korbanot, he would to the Mishkan rather. The Beit Hamikdash wasn't around. Sorry. Um, he would bring portions of food for his, for his wives and for his family. And even though Chana was the beloved wife, he would give her a very nice portion. Right? He would give her a nice portion, but it was still only one portion. right? She, she would watch him give Penina all of these portions for all of her children. So her nice portion, even though it was nice, it just wasn't enough. Right? And the Pasuk tells us, Ki et chana ahev. He loved Chana, so that's why he gave her a, a big portion. But, in contrast, Bahashem Sagar Rachma. Right? Even though she was the beloved wife, and she got a nice portion, and she got special treatment, but, contrast, second half of the Pasuk, 
Hashem sagar rachma. It just it wasn't enough. She didn't have children. Hashem closed her womb, and she she felt that. She really felt that. And and in pasuk vav we learn about how Penina was making her angry, mistreating her. We had this word again, tzara. The second wife is a tzara. She's a pain to the first wife. Um, and, and the commentaries talk about, well, what does that mean she would make her angry? Was it intentional she would make her angry? Did she outwardly make fun of her for not having a family? Or was it more subtle? Some of the commentaries suggest that she did it so that Hana would pray harder. Um, you know, they, they interpret that, that pasuk in different ways. But even without the outward, uh, you know, sort of deliberate poking of, you know, I have and you don't, the, the living situation just lent itself to just a lot of tension and what was going on between these two women. And this would happen every year when Elkanah would go up and get his, his korbanot and bring, and bring back the food. And one year, Elkanah notices that his wife, Hana, is very, very, very upset. So in Pasuk Chet, he says, he talks to her and he says, right, why are you crying, and why aren't you eating? You're not eating the portion that I brought you. Why do you feel so bad? And then he says, aren't I better for you? Aren't I as good for you than 10 children, than 10 sons? Right, so on the one hand, yeah, he's really trying to make her feel better. We see that he's trying to be supportive, but on the other hand, we're, we're, we're screaming, right? We're screaming between the lines, you don't get it. Right? He doesn't get it. He's what he's telling her by Halo Rabanim, he's given up essentially, right? He's saying, Don't worry, yeah, you have me. It'll be me and you. Right? But Hana's not there yet. She's still hoping. She's still praying. She's still wanting. But what El Kana just said, and even though it was well intentioned, showed her that he gave up. And he's resolving to the fact that it will just be the two of them and he'll just have children with Penina. So this makes Hana feel alone. She's in a full house, yet she's totally and completely alone in her sentiments. And she doesn't even bother to answer. She does not answer her husband. She doesn't answer Elkanah. She, the next pasuk, pasuk tet, batakam Hana she just gets up and she goes to the Mishkan. And we know that when she's at the Mishkan, she prays. Okay, and the psukim describe her um, with very, very strong words, pasuk yod marat nefesh. There's a bitterness in her soul, and she batit palel al Hashem. She prays to God. Ubachotivke doesn't say she cried. She double cried, right? Bachotivke, right? There's a there's an emphasis here on on how she was crying, and we know that she makes a promise to Hashem, and she says, Hashem, if you give me a son, you know, umora lo yaleal rosho, right? A razor won't touch his head. He'll be special. He'll be designated for you, right? She she really tries very hard. She she almost like makes a deal. She does. She makes a deal with Hashem. Um, and, and again, what we've seen from Sarah and this desperation that she's feeling and, and in this loneliness that she's feeling, right? But we also see that at the same time that she prays for a child, she also prays for the well-being of that child, right? She promises that that child will be for Hashem, right? What's the, what greater thing could a mother want that it, she's going to have a child that's going to grow up to serve God. So, right, she, she kind of accomplishes both those things um, in that initial prayer. And, and she prays just not only for, for a child, but also for the, for the well-being of that child. Um, the next character that I, that I want to look at is a little bit different. We don't know so much about this character as a father because the Pesukim don't tell us anything about him as a father. I want to look at Moshe. We know Moshe to be, he's a great leader, 
He's one of the greatest leaders we ever had. But we don't know so much about Moshe as a father. And people love to speculate, well, does this doesn't mean that he wasn't a great father, right? This is rabbi son syndrome, as they say. Um, or, or, right, it could simply just be that the Torah doesn't need to tell us Moshe was a great father because the Torah doesn't need to tell us the obvious. Of course he was a great father, right? And, and people can read into those Pesukim and commentaries, you know, really either way. Um, I'm hoping that, that you'll see, you know, the second side that I mentioned through, through what we describe right now. Um, and, and what we see from Moshe, we, we don't see these in the Pesukim, but the commentaries explain this that after the daughters of Tzlofchad, so there was, there was an incident in, in Torah where a man named Tzlofchad had passed away, and he passed away without any sons. He had five daughters. And now the daughters came to Moshe and said, why should our father's portion go leave the family, right? Give it to us, we want it. And nobody knows what to do. And Hashem agrees and says, yes, you know, his portion should go to the daughters. And that's kind of how that story ends. And immediately after, Rashi tells us that when, Hash- when Moshe saw that Hashem said, right, t- give the portion of Tzlofchad to his daughters, Moshe kind of thinks to himself, now it's my turn to sort of ask for my son's portion, right? I'm going to ask for what I need for my sons, right? Says Rashi here in source number nine. Um, I'm at the end of the first line, if you want to follow along. It's time for me to tell Hashem that I want my sons to inherit my greatness and my leadership and my position. And Hashem tells him, nope, I have another plan. Your sons will not inherit you for whatever reason we don't know. Um, he says, you know, there's, there's a better man for the job. Yehoshua, who has served you and who has been with you and who's and has always supported you and has never left your side and has learned Torah from you for all of this time, Yehoshua is the one that's going to succeed you as a leader. Okay, that's Rashi's comment. And now the Midrash kind of reads into what happened, what was Moshe feeling at the time that Yehoshua was um, announced to be Moshe's successor and how that made Moshe feel. Again, it's a Midrash, but I, I think it's an interesting one and relevant to, to our topic. So the Midrash starts in source number 10. Hashem tells Moshe, right, go call Yehoshua your servant and honor him in the eyes of all of B'nai Israel." And Moshe kind of pushes back and says, well, why? Why should Yehoshua get all, all of this honor? And, and Hashem answers him, you know, he's going to need to get all this honor now. He's going to pass, you know, through the, the, the nation because maybe B'nai Israel will think that after you passed away, so he took over, but not because he was really worthy of taking over, but just because you're not around anymore, right? He says, right, this man, B'nai Moshe Lohore, right? In, in the face of Moshe, he couldn't be around and he couldn't teach, right? After, achar mitat rabo hu more horaot that he'll start teaching things. That Hashem is saying, this is what B'nai Israel might think. So I want you to announce now that Yehoshua is going to be your successor to show that he is a worthy successor. Moshe answers, right? You know, what's going on here for 40 years? I've been the teacher and all of a sudden, you know, you want somebody else to be the teacher. And the last line is, is really what we're, we're, we're discussing this for. Ubacha v'tza'ak v'nishma kolo bechol hamachaneh. He screamed and he cried and his voice was heard throughout the people. So now, what was he crying about, right? We could say he was mourning the fact that his sons 
weren't going to succeed him, weren't going to follow in his footsteps. And he, that was very, very painful for him, right? He cried and he screamed, a very painful, a, a cry from a place of real pain. That hurt him that his sons weren't going to succeed him. He wanted the best for his sons, right? He wanted, he wanted really their well-being. And he was trying to convey that to Hashem. And Hashem said, you know, I have other plans for this nation. But that was very, very painful um, for Moshe to hear as a parent. Because, obviously, you know, he wanted the best for his sons. So, with all of this in mind, praying for children, praying for the well-being of children, right? We've seen that it... it it um, invokes this feeling, really, of, of intense emotion in people, sometimes a place of pain, sometimes a place of desperation, um, a feeling of they don't know what else to do, who else to turn to. So with that, we're going to explore one of the chapters in Tehillim, Mizmor Kuf Chaf Aleph, the Mizmor of Esa Enai El Heharim. Hopefully, it's, I'm sure it's a familiar chapter, um, but hopefully we could look at it through a new lens um, and, and gain some insight. So, so I want to just give a bit of an introduction to Sefer Tehillim. As we know, Sefer Tehillim was written by David HaMelech. And what's so unique about Sefer Tehillim is that there are all different types of Mizmorim in Sefer Tehillim, right? There's, there's praise and there's, there's happiness and there's thanks and there's times of distress and sorrow and, and complaint. Um, and, and really, the, Sefer Tehillim, the chapters in Sefer Tehillim represent the full gamut of human emotion within each emotion you know there's the severity of emotions um it's it's really an amazing work um it reflects many of the chapters do reflect events that happened in david hamelech's life but interestingly even the chapters that we think sort of correspond to specific events in his life there's always a lot of commentary surrounding it meaning there's always um they're never able to fully pinpoint, you know, this chapter was from this specific event and this specific point in David's life. It's never absolute. It can always be read in, in multiple ways and, and into multiple situations. And obviously that's, that's on purpose, right? Because Sefer Tehillim is supposed to be a timeless work. It's supposed to be a work that David gave us that we should have an ability to connect to Hashem, you know, through our emotions, um, and, and all those emotions, like we said, are representative in that sefer. And it's not supposed to be sort of hold into one specific time and one specific place. It's supposed to be general, speaking to, to different people in different situations. So that's very, very deliberate. And we're going to see that through our Mizmor today as well. Okay, so, you know, let's get into now Mizmor. It's, it's source number 11. Like I said, if you, if you want to follow along... You, you can, and if not, we'll, we'll definitely read and, and explain everything. So, Pasuk Aleph, Shir Lamalot, Esa Enai El Heharim, Me'ain Yavo Ezri. So, just like we've said about the other chapters of Tehillim, this chapter, commentaries have a very hard time placing this chapter. What's going on in this chapter? Who's sort of speaking in this chapter? When are they speaking? What are they going through? unclear unclear there's a lot of different a lot of different suggestions that they make but ultimately there's no one consensus but we what we do have is is the meaning of the words right so we have this individual that seems to be the voice in this in this mismore in this chapter and he says i'm looking my i'm raising my eyes towards the mountains where will my hope come this is somebody who is in need of help he is in severe distress and he needs help 
he's he's very alone, right? Many times in Tefillah, we, we pray Belashon Rabin, we pray in, in, in right, in, not in singular, in, in many, but here this is singular, this is very, very personal. He's coming from a place of pain and he really needs help, he needs an intervention. He's looking out, right, you can almost picture the imagery, like he's looking out into the landscape and he sees so much and so many mountains, but at, at the same time, he can't see where his salvation is coming from, right? He's, he's lost. Um, and I hope that just from with those emotions, you could already think about all of the different people that we spoke about and how they were feeling and, and see how that matches up. Okay, he doesn't see hope. He, he's uncertain about his outcome at this point, right? He's, he's, it's like he's in an open field and he's looking towards the mountains and where's, where's my salvation going to come? What's going to happen? What's going to happen? Um, he's definitely in some, some sort of trouble. Either he's about to go on some sort of very long journey that he doesn't know the outcome of. It could be a literal journey. It could be a figurative journey, right? Somebody who's praying for children who doesn't have children, that's certainly a journey. Uh, talking about infertility, that's definitely a journey. Or somebody that's going through something with their children and they're praying for the well-being of their children and it's a process until they come out of that. That's also a journey, right? So this is, again, like somebody that's in trouble on a journey and right away he's sort of, you know, when he asks, where's my help going to come from? He picks up with that word again. Ah, I know where my help is going to come from. My help is going to come from God. How do I know my help is going to come from God? Because God is God makes the heaven and the earth, right? So there was a little bit, there was a, there was a process here between Psukim Aleph and Bet. We went from somebody who's completely desperate and completely alone, and we see maybe that he was able to talk himself down a little bit, not fully, as we'll see later, but he was able to talk himself down a little bit, right? He was able to talk himself down from a place of, I have no idea where my help is going to come from, I don't know what my outcome is going to be, but Ezri Meim Hashem, right? My, my help is going to come from God, that's Ose Shamaim Ba'aretz. Almost like, you know, talks himself down a little bit. Then what happens in Pasuk Gimbal is interesting. Al yiten raglecha, al yanum shomrecha. Right? Don't let, your, your legs should not falter and your, your keepers, your guards should not fall asleep. So what we, what we have here is we almost have here like a second voice. Either it's a second, like another inner voice within this individual, or maybe there is like a second sort of character or figure that, that comes um, and that's part of like the talking, this person in desperation, the talking him down, right? Again, unclear. Um, and these things are unclear, I think, for a reason. But, but this is, we almost have the second voice that's introduced in Pasukimel, right? Um, almost like he's, 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 um, giving him a beracha almost, right? Your legs shouldn't falter on this journey. Your guards, your your keepers should continue to watch you, right? Um, almost like a wish that the second voice sort of has for the person that's that's in desperation. And then pasuk dalid, hine lo yanum velo yishan shomer Yisrael, right? That beracha is sort of hine. Yes, it's true, right? Your, your legs shouldn't falter, right? Gives him a beracha, but then, yeah, it won't, that will come true. Why? Because there's a Shomer Yisrael that, that doesn't sleep, that doesn't fall asleep, right? Nam, 
is to fall asleep, and doesn't sleep, because he's always watching Yisrael. Now, what's interesting here is Pasuk Gimel, we said, is like this other voice that's introduced. Pasuk Dalid, unclear if it's that second voice that's still talking or if it's the first person that's still talking, right? If maybe he listened to the second voice, right? Does everybody see that? Maybe he listened to the second voice in Pasuk Gimel and then said, oh, yeah, you're right, because Shomei Yisrael, right? The God doesn't sleep ever. God is always watching and always making sure and always watching over me. Unclear if it's that first person or maybe it's, it is the second voice sort of um, like giving... Uh, reaffirming what he said. How do I know? How do I know that this bracha that I'm giving you is going to come true? Because Hashem is Shomer Yisrael and Hashem doesn't sleep. Hashem is always going to watch over you. So uh, this 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 um, lack of clarity as to who's talking is interesting because it could be, like we said before, it's the individual that's kind of through his prayer and through his connection to God is talking himself down from this initial sort of feeling of loneliness and desperation and not knowing where his help is going to come from to a place of being a little bit more certain that there is going to be some sort of intervention, there is going to be some sort of help, right? Or you could say that we're still kind of a little bit desperate and that second voice is the one that's coming to to to, to talk, talk him down. Now, if we say that it's an internal voice, right, then it's all the same thing. Um, but, uh, but I think it's an interesting thing to, to sort of contemplate this, Pasuk Dalid, who, which voice is this coming from? Pasuk Hey, we definitely have going back to that second voice, right? Hashem Shomrecha, Hashem Tzilecha al Yad Yeminecha. Hashem will keep you and watch over you. Hashem will be your your shade, your tzel, right? Al Yad Yeminecha on your right hand, right? Like your right hand man. We know somebody that's important, somebody that's significant. They're like your right hand man. So it's as if the second voice is telling the person in distress. Hashem is going to watch over you so much so that he's going to be your right hand. He's going to be right there for you. And not just that, but if we go back to the to the you know, the person that's in this open landscape and just in distress and, and, and maybe very vulnerable, right? Somebody that's in an open landscape with just all mountains ahead, he's vulnerable to the elements. He has no protection. But what is Pasuke coming to tell us? Hashem Tzilcha. Hashem is going to be your shade. Hashem is going to provide some refuge for you um, in, in that scenario, right? We have Yoshev Beseter Elyon, Betzel Shaddai Yitlonan, another pasuk from Tehillim, right? One who, who sits in the, in the dwelling of, of the, of the, of the Elyon, of the Great One, right? Of the Almighty, right? Betzel Shaddai Yitlonan will dwell in the shade of God, right? This God's shade is kind of depicted as this um, as, as this protection, as this encouragement, um, as the source of, you know, somebody who's going to watch over somebody. Um, right. Another thing that we have here, right. Interestingly enough, like we said in, in Pasuk Ima, we said the Al and the Al, right. Al, Al Al Yanum Shomrecha, like there's a, there's like a wish, right. But then we have Hine Lo Yanum Velo Yishan, right. There's that wish, but but like we said, unclear which voice it is, it's going to come true, right? It, there's, a, there's a sense of this is, this is right? Not, it's not just a wish anymore. This is, right? It's, it's, a, it's more of a statement of fact as opposed to just kind of a wish and a hope. And Hashem is, is like we said, watching over and, and it's that continuation of that second voice um, that, that 
that's talking down the first voice, right? Your mom, and then we have again your mom Hashemesh lo yakeka ve'erech balayla. Again, it's that second voice. The the sun, the rays of the sun will not hit you ve'erech balayla. So this person that's in the landscape, that's vulnerable to the elements, to the rays of the sun, the hot sun is beating down, and also to the Yarech Balayla. So back in the day, they used to believe that the moon's rays were also harmful. So all of these harmful agents that are outside will not affect you. Why? Because Hashem, because we already said in Pasukei, Hashem Tzilcha, right? Hashem is going to be your shade. Hashem is going to be your protector um, on your right hand. Hashem is always going to watch over you. Hashem yishmorcha mikol ra yishmor et nafshecha. Hashem will, um, will, will keep you and guard you from anything bad. Yishmor et nafshecha. Right? So I want to look at Hashem yishmorcha mikol ra from all, everything bad, everything that's bad that could possibly happen. Right? And yishmor et nafshecha. There's, there's, a, obviously these things are parallel, but they're also saying two different things. Right? Hashem will protect you from anything bad that will happen. Um, anything physically bad that will happen. Again, if we're talking about somebody that's on a journey or in distress, things that could potentially go wrong, right? That's Mikol Rath. Bad things that could go wrong. Hashem is going to protect you from that, but also Yishmoret Nafshecha. He's also going to protect your soul, right? Because there's a whole mental component over here, right? Like we said, there's a mental piece and there's an emotional piece here and the people that are praying for the, their children or the well-being of their children, right? They're they're hoping that they will be kept okay, but the toll that it's taking on them emotionally, this journey, um, is is very very great. So this Hashem Yishmorchami Kol Ra, Hashem will save you and and watch you over from all the other obstacles, but also Yishmor Nafshecha will take care of of your soul, of your of your mental state, of your emotional state, your nefesh, right? Hashem will also take care of that too, and that's super important, right? It could be like. A person can have no obstacles and a person can overcome their obstacles, but what toll does it take on them? What emotional toll does that have on their well-being? That's, that's significant also. So, you know, this, this sort of second voice um, is telling the person, this, this first person in distress, no, this is a package deal, right? Hashem is going to take care of you in totality, all of you. Um... Right, that was Pasuk Zain, right? Then we have the last Pasuk, Hashem Yishmor Tzetcha Uvoecha Me'ata Ve'ad Olam. Okay, Hashem will watch and, and guide over your, your leaving and your coming now and forever, right? So what is this, God will keep your coming and going, right? What, what is that? So again, somebody that's in distress, if we talk about their stress being almost like a, like a symbolic or figurative journey, right? They're going, God is going to ensure that they go out on that journey, but also come back from that journey. They're not going to get lost on that journey, right? We started with the imagery of this individual in an open landscape, whether that was literal or figurative, right? It's possible that, that, that individual gets lost in all of that and all of that uncertainty and all of that vulnerability, in all of that loneliness, it's it's possible the person gets lost, right? But we already said, right? Hashem right? Hashem will make sure that you come and go and come back from this. Okay, you're coming and you're going. Well, sometimes, like we say, I don't know if I'm coming or going. Like all of these things that are going on, Hashem is going to make sure that you come and you go. Whether this is a literal journey, whether this is a, a theoretical, hypothetical journey, um, Hashem will make sure that that you come back from that. 
right? Another thing that could be, you know, like um, one of the commentaries say that is, is meaning everything that you do. So everything that you do, everything that's happening is very, very overwhelming. Hashem will make sure that you, you're not overwhelmed. You overcome all of that. You, you're able to handle all that, and then it's not going to be overly overwhelming um, and consume you in, in entirety, right? Hashem kind of takes care of you from A to Z. From now until, until forever, right? It's, it's all-encompassing. Okay, so hopefully you see how, you know, this person in this Mizmor is in severe distress and how that reflects some of the characters that we've talked about. I want to take a step back and look at the Mizmor in totality, and see just even how what the Mizmor looks like as a whole reflects the themes that, that we've spoken about, about a person who's in distress reaching out to God, you know, whether it's for children or, or any any really sort of distress that they're in. So if you look at if you want to if we split the 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 chapter in half, what we'll see is that from Pesukim Aleph through Dalet, Hashem's name is only mentioned once. Okay? Only in Pasukba, Ezrima im Hashem Ose Shamaim Ba'aretz. Right, we have um, in Pasuk Dalid, we have Shomer Yisrael, we have nicknames, but Hashem's name is not actually mentioned. The second half of them is more has Hashem's name four times. Right, there's there, it's almost like there's much more of an awareness or there's much more of a connection. The individual feels closer to God, so he's saying God's name more. He has more of a dialogue with God. He started I'm alone in this open landscape, and I don't know where my salvation is coming from. But throughout the chapter, throughout this Mizmor, he's forming a connection to God. He's using this Mizmor to connect with God, and it works. He develops a closer relationship with God, I think as evidenced by Hashem's name going up from one to four in the first half of the Mizmor and in the second half of the Mizmor. Um, Another thing that I wanted to point out is that if you look at... If you look at the first two Pesukim versus the rest of the Mizmor, so the first two Pesukim, the individual asks for help. He says, Ezri, right? My assistance, my help. The verb that's used in the rest is the verb, Shin Memresh, Shamor, to help, to keep. It's not, it's not an just request for assistance anymore right what god is going to offer this person and what he knows he's going to get from god is not just assistance right assistance help is like i'm doing something so i just need some help right shamor i think it's a it's a different meaning it's a lot more nuanced right um it can be preventative so so keeping the person so that problems will not arise in which that person will need help or it can be more support Right, God will support you. That Shin Memresh, God will guard you and keep you and watch you and support you, not just help you. It's a different level, and it's interesting that the beginning just starts with just help. It's almost as if, as if the individual is like not totally sure what he needs. He feels like he just needs help, but through his connection, through his prayer, through his deeper closeness to God, he's actually going to get Shmira to be to be guarded, to be watched, to be taken. 
Yes, yes, exactly, right? Um, with you the whole time, with them the whole time on that journey. Um, and that's really what he needs, right? And that's really what he wants on, on this journey, right? So, and that's significant, I think. I, I think it's almost in every pasuk, that shin memrish, that, that shorish. Um, significant. Yes, okay, right? So, again, we, we, we saw through the words of the Mizmor how this person is feeling but what's also interesting to see is when we take a step back and look at them he's more in total we kind of can see the progression of this individual he starts by himself we have the second voice maybe it's an internal voice like we said maybe it's an external voice but we end off with Hashem this feeling of of you know God has me and God has this individual that's a far way from where we started. Remember, we started We started totally um, in desperation and, and look where we ended. And we see that a lot in Tehillim. Sometimes we see that there's a progression through the Mizmor, which I think is so significant because sometimes even just the act of prayer is, is encouraging and reassuring, right? Forget about the fact that we're reaching out to God and we're requesting God intervene you know, in a personal way in our lives. Um, but even just that act of prayer can sometimes just be good for us, right? And then, of course, we're obviously forging a, a, a deeper relationship with God. We see that a lot in Tehillim where, like, the, you know, it's almost like the, the individual is, like, talking themselves down. Um, that's also evident in, in Hannah's experience where she, she, she leaves the meal having not eaten. She was too sad to eat because she was too busy crying. And after she prays, she comes back and the pasuk says, Vatuchal, she ate. And, and she felt better with herself, right? That prayer did something for her. It brought her to a place where, where she can eat. Another place where we see this, I think, is that um, the, in the second half, or really in the, in the, from Pasu Gimel until the end, we have this, everything is for you, right? Shomrecha. Hashem Shomrecha. Hashem Tzilcha. Yad Yeminecha. Right? For you, for you. Hashem will do for you. It's, it's um, I think, indicative of, of a personal connection, right? Hashem will do for you, right? We, in the beginning, we had these generalizations of Hashem Shomer Yisrael, right? Hashem lo enum Shomer Yisrael. No, 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 it's not just that Hashem Shomer Yisrael. Yes, that's true, Hashem Shomer Yisrael. But Hashem also is taking an interest and in intervening in your personal life, you person in distress that's praying for children, praying for your children, praying to get out of your very distressing situation that you're in, right? Hashem, yes, of course, takes care of the whole, but Hashem also intervenes and takes care of you as an individual, right? We have that a lot through the second half of, that, uh, of the Mizmor, and I think that that reflects the, the person's realization of that, right? The person starts to realize that through, like we said, his closer relationship with God, starts off like this statement of where is my help coming from? And now he has this connection with Hashem um, where he's realizing that Hashem is interested in him as a person. So it's not just like from where is my help coming from? It's, it's something a lot more specific and something a lot more tangible. Um, and the last thing, of course, um, that I think is you know important to mention, even though we We've, we've studied Amis more, ho- hopefully a little bit more in depth, um, and we have an understanding, and, and hopefully, you know, this Amis more can serve people to, you know, pray for children, pray for their children, their well-being, um, or, or any sort of tefillah in distress. Um, I want to end by the statement of the Mishnah Berurah. The Mishnah Berurah, also known as the Chafetz Chaim, wrote a very important commentary on the first section of the Shulchan Aruch, which is our 
code of law that we refer to, right? When we want to know what to do. The first part is Ora Chaim. So it's, you know, kind of a halachot of daily life. Um, Mishnah Berurah is a very important commentary on that. And he makes the following statement in source number 12. Right? A person should pray every single day um, on his, for his needs, for his parnasah, for his vizar'o, vizerazar'o, right? He should pray for his children and he should pray for his grandchildren. That all of his children and grandchildren will be God-fearing individuals, right? And and whatever really his, his heart should desire. But even though we just studied chapter of Tehillim, which is very, very important and, and very significant in connecting us to God. If he's not fluent in speaking in Hebrew, Right? He'll say it in any language. Here he uses Ashkenaz or German because that's the country that he was living in. But he, he can, you can always pray to God. Right? You can always pray to God in any language. Um, you could always reach out to God and, and form a sincere connection to God, right? If, if one is not fluent in Hebrew, right? It should just be with sincerity from the depths of his heart. So hopefully we use Sefer Tehillim, we use our prayers to connect to God, but we also just have, there's, there's a value in spontaneous prayer um, in, in talking to God really from, from the depths of our soul. So hopefully, you know, we have some, some new insight in terms of how people how people feel when they pray for their children, how people feel when they pray for children children in general, um, and really in the more in the grand scheme of things, just a prayer for somebody who's who's in distress and kind of feels like they're alone and they need an intervention. Um, so God willing, Hashem should answer all of our prayers and all our desires that are in our hearts for good, um, and we should you know be heard and have connections with God for ourselves and for the well-being also of all of our children.